Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 77 for the 2nd to 3rd of June 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is 2012 backpedaling. Obviously, the doomsday that wasn't, December 21st, 2012, wasn't. We're still here, nothing bad happened, nothing spiritual happened, and most of us went on with our lives. I had planned this episode to be around February of this year because I expected to see major persons like John Major Jenkins, or Brent Biller, or Calamon, or Barbara Handclough, or various others just who had anticipated, who had predicted something major to basically be disgraced or come up with some stupid backpedaling to explain away what didn't happen. I was disappointed. That's why this episode has been put off for so long. But it had been long promised, so I've scrounged up some examples of how people have been backpedaling, though they were some of the more minor in the mythos. Except for John Major Jenkins, and I thank listener Jim S. for writing to me about this. In his books and writings, Major Jenkins, or John Major Jenkins, whatever, was very big on the idea that the Maya knew all about what we think are recent discoveries in physics, like quantum mechanics. To quote from Jenkins' Maya Cosmogenesis 2012 book, The Maya, however, not only knew about quantum anomalies, but were able to conjure them up at will and travel into them. I talked a little bit about John Major Jenkins' claims in the Galactic Alignment episode, number 15, where he claimed this, quote, Amazingly, the center of this cosmic cross, that is, right where the ecliptic crosses over the Milky Way, is exactly where the December solstice sun will be in AD 2012. This alignment only occurs once every 25,800 years. The bottom line of my theory is that the ancient Maya chose the 2012 end date because this is the date on which occurs a rare alignment of the solstice sun with the galactic center. The long count calendar is a galactic calendar because it pinpoints a rare alignment with our Milky Way galaxy due to occur in AD 2012, a date written as 13.0.0.0 on the long count. End quote. With the latter point, already in 2011, he was backpedaling, claiming that the alignment isn't actually with the center of the galaxy, but it's with the equator of the galaxy, near the central bulge, so that, quote, other people say it's the center. But he still tried to put a New Age versus Establishment spin on it by saying that physicists and astronomers, quote, reject the galactic alignment notion, end quote, to try to imply that because they reject it, his audience should accept it, because physicists and astronomers are staunchy old white men who don't know anything. With respect to Doomsday, Jenkins has claimed over and over and over again, same old place, same situation, that for many years, 2012 is not going to be a Doomsday event, and that it's just other people who claim, but not him, that it's going to be a Doomsday event. To quote, Guess what? There is zero evidence that the ancient Maya predicted the end of the world in 2012, end quote. That's from his alignment2012.com website. In a 2010 interview on Coast to Coast, he claimed that even though the calendar ends, it's us, you, know, you and me, 
well, maybe the person on the street, but not you and me, but it's the people in the West who tend to associate endings with doom, and that the Maya never intended that. Unfortunately for John Major Jenkins, his own book, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, published back in 1998, claims the opposite. To quote, One thing is certain. The Maya believed the world will end in AD 2012. The ancient Maya understood that future alignment would have apocalyptic effects and designed their world age mythology to remind us of what is essential and what can help us through this transformation. End quote. Of course, if they could peer through quantum anomalies and travel to any time and place, as he claimed later in his book, you'd think that they could have been a little bit more clear with this alleged prophecy. What we really see with John Major Jenkins is someone who started backpedaling several years before 2012. The reason I say that instead of updating his research and changing his mind, which is what most scholars tend to do over time, is that he kept claiming he never said that it was doom and gloom, despite his book specifically saying it. As to what he's up to nowadays, not much as far as I can find. Dustin C. alerted me to a website with the URL December212012.com. That's with no punctuation except for before the com. It's something similar to John Major Jenkins, so the website looks like it was made in the late 1990s. It's similar in the sense that the administrator backpedaled about as much as Jenkins. On the website, there are various links to things like Planet X and 2012 Solar Storms. There's a store that sells t-shirts and books on how to survive the coming end. Well, the t-shirts are advocating and the books tell you how to survive it. On the 2012 Survival Guide page, they clearly state, quote, Surviving the coming events of December 21, 2012 is not necessarily like surviving other natural or man-made disasters. You and your family will have to be more proactive and assume more preemptive strategies for long-term or even permanent survival. You need to realize that this will be a global event that will affect each and every living thing on the planet. Food and clean water will be scarce, and public utilities will be non-existent. The world governments cannot and will not be able to assist in your continuing well-being, and you will more or less be on your own." End quote. In fact, they have a FAQ, or FAQ, where there's the question, aren't you needlessly scaring people? The response is, quote, I don't think so. I have been studying and researching the facts, theories, prophecies, and predictions surrounding December 21, 2012 since late 1998, conveniently about the time when John Major Jenkins' book was written, and I have come to the conclusion that something dramatic is about to happen, end quote. And yet, near the end, they shut down the forum and posted to the Facebook page on December 18th, 2012, quote, Please, people, I'm begging you, do not overreact or make any rash decisions regarding December 21st. Anyone who knows anything about the 2012 prophecies, including myself, does not believes, that's the mistake in the writing, that the world is going to end. This date simply marks the end of an era and the beginning of a new. This is an exciting time for our planet, and we should consider ourselves blessed to be alive and able to experience a fantastic new existence. End quote. 
As with Jenkins, perhaps I'd believe him, except for the fact the website is still up claiming doom and gloom. I got these quotes three days ago, and I'm recording this six days after it says it's going up. The December 21, 2012.com network, that's what they call themselves, hasn't updated nor posted to their Facebook page since January 19th, and since then, hundreds of other people have posted, mocking them. So this is really a theme that seems to hold throughout other people. December 21, 2012 is not an end, though they said it was an end, but it's a new spiritual beginning with nothing physically changing, even though they say it will. That's me paraphrasing, by the way. Perhaps on a lighter note, given everything that didn't happen, there's the story of Peter Gersten, sent to me both by Graham and Torsten P. He ran the 2012leapoffaith.net website, where back in 2010 he stated, quote, I sincerely believe that on WS 2012 at 1111, a cosmic portal will materialize in Sedona, Arizona. Based on synchronistic experiences and intuitive information downloads, which I will explain in more detail in the coming months on this website, I am convinced that I must attempt a leap of faith from the top of Bell Rock at that moment. My ultimate purpose will be to use that, quote, doorway to access the center of the galaxy and the source of our cosmic computer program, end quote. This is on his now defunct website, but you can access it via the Internet Wayback Machine. I caution you that it's from an era before even December 21, 2012.com's site in terms of design. It's just one long page with all centered, italicized, and mostly bolded text. Fun times. Peter continued this until around early 2012, when he grew more quiet. On December 13, 2012, he wrote on his Facebook page, What's with this jumping off a big rock? I agree with Larry that if an extraordinary event does happen, I will not have to risk my life, let alone jump off any rock to access it. And then he removed that post a day later. On December 18th, 2012, he wrote, I'll be on top of Bell Rock for most of the day slash night on the 21st and still expect an electromagnetic anomaly to manifest. But if it doesn't, I will be coming down the same way I went up earlier in the day. About a day before, on December 20th, 2012, he posted to Facebook, And for everyone who still thinks I'll be jumping off the top of Bell Rock, please read my lips. I am not. I just rented a magical place by Red Rock Crossing for 2013. When the day came, he apparently was on top of Bell Rock but he had assured the Arizona forestry officials who manage the butte that he would not be jumping unless a vortex or portal actually opened. He apparently also had been involved with a psychiatric care a few days before the event. The story ends not with a splat, but with a whimper, where really nothing much happened, except this guy made the news. He didn't do anything. And he tried to erase the statements that he did claim something, like deleting his blog posts and his website and setting his YouTube channel to private, unlike the other folks I've talked about who just left them up there for us to mock six months later. Of course, as way too many teenagers have learned, once something is on the internet, there is very little you can do to actually get rid of it. 
Meanwhile, the kind folks at Coast to Coast AM had 17 guests on on December 21st, 2012. Among them were Richard Hoagland, Mike Barra, and Robert Bouval, all of whom I've talked about before on the podcast. They, along with the other 14 people, all talked about stuff that promoted their own brand of pseudoscience. Hoagland, for example, claimed that he had positive proof that the HARP facility in Alaska was pinging the pyramids across the world with hyperdimensional physics energy to make sure that the world didn't tip over. Since that call, all he's focused on in shows is how he was, what he claims, is being arrested, and actually he wasn't arrested, at Mayan ruins because he didn't call ahead to get a permit to have a laptop for $20. John Hogue, the go-to guy for Nostradamus interpretations, said that this was never the end, that the true prophet was Nostradamus, and that he had predictions out another several centuries, so there was nothing ever to worry about. L.A. Marzulli said the same thing except for his own prophecies about the Middle East. Major Ed Dames, the doom and gloom remote viewer who's really been on the show since the 1990s with Art Bell, who I don't think has ever predicted something on the show that came true, claimed that 2013 would be the year of the solar kill shot. This was before he claimed in 2011 that 2012 would be the solar kill shot, before he claimed in 2010 that 2011 would be the solar kill shot, and so on and so forth, which he's been saying has always just been a few months away for at least the last 15 years. Mike Barra, who doesn't know how to calculate the ellipticity of a planet's orbit, still thinks that clouds are white because they're closer to a camera in space and oceans are dark because they're farther away, claimed that the 2012 thing did happen and that we all now have a choice to make and we can recreate the world by thinking good things. Hence his book, The Choice. Daniel Brinkley claimed that we are moving from one corrupt part of the galaxy to another part called the Universal Period that would be characterized by no more secrets. There's also Whitley Strieber, who in every interview, and there's been a lot, and he has his own show where he has to remind his audience in every episode that he thinks he was butt-probed by Men in Black in 1980s, he came on and he blamed the media for the end of the world hype, when it was actually people like him and shows like Coast to Coast talking about it for over a decade that stirred up hype so that the more mainstream media simply picked up on it to report on the hype. Anyway, he came on to actually correct misconceptions that the planets were not aligned, and we are not passing over the middle of the galaxy. He was really the first backtracker of the night, and it was mainly in the context of blaming everyone but himself for the hype. Then we had Winfrey, an author and publisher, though he was introduced as a researcher. He said instead that on December 21, 2012, a celestial alignment allowed energy to flow into our realm at the strongest magnitude in the history of mankind. This energy is causing Earth, the third chakra planet, to move to a fourth chakra marked by compassion and empathy. Humans must open their heart chakras to the new energy to continue on their evolutionary track it was very Deepak Chopra-esque, in fact, it could have been Deepak Chopra himself, except for the accent. You can contrast that with claims he made a few years earlier on the show where he did spout doom and gloom. Robert Bouval, the guy who claims that Egypt's pyramids are aligned with Orion, see episode 34 for more on that, he went on about the precision 
of the Maya pyramids, which, by extension, you're supposed to marvel at the precision he claims for the Egyptian pyramids and their stellar alignments. Then there was also Maurice Cotterell, who I'll be talking about in some future episode. His shtick is that astrology is real, and God is energy, and you can kill parts of God by hurting yourself or some such other thing. He was also on basically to say that the Mayan calendar is all about accurate sun cycles and magnetic reversals, which it's not, but it, as with everyone else who was on, plays into his own set of mythology. All in all, there was really very little in the way of backtracking by the people who were on. If I had to guess, it would be that the producers made very sure to only have on people who had not predicted specific things, either doomy and gloomy or crazy things for the day, so that they wouldn't be confronted by their failures. And since then, the people who have been spouting the doom and gloom, or crazy manifesting things about 2012 on Coast to Coast for years, haven't really been on. For example, on August 17th, 2004, David Wilcock, the man who thinks he's the reincarnation of Edgar Cayce, claimed that after December 21st, 2012, we would be able to levitate, rewind time, and do instant healing, among several other things. The last time he was on the show was May 2012, though he used to be on many times a year. Now it's been over a year. A little of the same happened with David Sarita, who I plan to also do a show about in the future, who was on five times in 2011, two times in 2010, three in 2009, etc., etc., but he hasn't been on in over a year. He claimed several similar things and ranted for a bit about how scientists and debunkers don't know what they're talking about because no human has ever been in this part of the galaxy that we've just entered on December 21st, 2012. And that really seems to be the second theme of the backpedaling. Besides claiming it's something spiritual you can't see, the second main response has simply been... As we talked about in episode 62, my interview with Bill Hudson of the former 2012hoax.org and now cosmophobia.org website, the question now is, what's next? And the answer is still... I don't know. I've heard a few rumblings of various doomsday things going on for minor events. For example, we just had the asteroid 1999 QE2 pass by Earth a few weeks ago. It was well beyond the orbit of the moon, but it was still over a mile across and it was discovered during its closed pass to have its own moon, which isn't that unusual, but it's still pretty neat. In the first and hopefully only time I ever listened to radio host Clyde Lewis, he kept replaying some news clip from a guy on a major network saying that even though scientists say that we'll be safe, you'd better stock up on canned food, just to be sure. And Clyde Lewis kept saying something to the effect of, what do they know that they're not telling us? Obviously nothing happened. Obviously it was just a case of a stupid newscaster either making a really stupid bad joke or just being stupid. Which, as a side note, the hypocrisy still amazes me about the so-called alternative shows and media like Coast to Coast or Clyde Lewis's Ground Zero show, where they rant and rave about how the mainstream media can't get anything right, and yet when they do say stupid things like this that aren't right, they latch onto those and treat them as true, and leaks to us, the peons, the sheeple. 
But anyway, that's for somebody else's political show. The thing is, we are still going to get asteroid flybys, near misses, and we are going to be hit. We are hit every day. Pretty much every professional astronomer will tell you that the most likely way that the universe is going to kill us will be with an asteroid strike. It will happen. It's an almost statistical certainty, but not in the near future. The likelihood of it happening on any given day or year or even century is very, very, very small. But the likelihood of it happening in, say, the next 100 million years is very large. We've found and identified and tracked over 99% of the objects that are currently in Earth-crossing orbits that could wipe out human civilization. But not stuff that could wipe out, say, a country or a city. And despite what Billy Myers' independent spokesman Michael Horn and his ilk would like to tell you, asteroid Apophis is not going to hit in 2036. But if I had to guess now, I'd say that there will likely be a lot of media tension and then rumblings about Doomsday in the year or two leading up to it, and probably it's close past by in 2029. Otherwise, I don't know what the next popular Doomsday is going to be. In 2011, it was Harold Camping's predictions. People spent all their money, killed their pets, quit their jobs, and when it didn't happen, they had no recourse. In 2012, it was the Maya alleged end of the calendar. I think there was less extreme real-world response to that than camping stuff, but I think it got a lot more media attention. It's 2013 now, and the only thing I can see this year people latching onto is maybe Comet Ison, which I discussed at the end of episode 75. It seems that people, and the media, need a big doomsday every few years. What the next big one's going to be, only time will tell. The only new news this week is that I finally saw the latest Star Trek movie, and I find it humorous, or found it humorous, that the planet Nibiru, which, you know, is the name of Planet X according to numerous people, had a civilization on it, only they were incredibly primitive, not the super-advanced Anunnaki, and no, I didn't give away any spoilers. Anyway, that was just sort of my own little musings. On to Q&A, where this episode's question comes from Wallace L., who asks... I was reading about the large quasar group, which is alleged to be the largest known structure in the universe. At least, this is according to the news article I was reading. I would love to hear your assessment of this claim. Is it really the largest structure in the universe? Does physics allow for structures even larger than this one? Why does this one exist in the first place? Does this debunk the cosmological principle which states that the universe should look uniform when viewed at a large enough scale? What do we really know about this structure, and what is mere speculation? So I'll provide numerous links to news articles, Wikipedia, and the actual article on the show notes for the website. Wallace's questions are a bit long and involved, so I'm going to try to shorten them and get to the, the gist of the important stuff for this item. I need to preface this by saying that it's about the farthest thing from my field as you can get while still being within the realm of astronomy. So take what I say with a planet-sized grain of salt. First, a quasar is a very, very bright object, but most are very far away, as in billions of light-years away. They stand for quasi-stellar radio source, 
They're very energetic, and they're basically the active nucleus of a galaxy that's basically a black hole feeding and sending off giant jets of material. They can be seen across most of the visible universe. The other part of this question relates to large-scale structure and large-scale structures themselves. Just as our solar system is a group of stuff bound together by gravity, our galaxy is a group of other stuff bound together by gravity, and the local group is a group of galaxies bound together by gravity, so too can quasars form large groups bound together by gravity. But the cosmological principle holds that over large scales, everything should look about the same to within normal statistical fluctuations. And you can plug in parameters as we think they are, like the Hubble constant and the amount of dark energy, and come up with a number for what the largest structure should statistically be. When you do that with normal parameters and normal basic assumptions, you get something very roughly around 400 megaparsecs, or about 1 billion light years. The largest structure until this article had been the Sloan Great Wall, which was about 430 megaparsecs, just about the limit, or just past the limit of what the largest structure should be. What this discovery is, is a large quasar group that has a characteristic size of about 500 megaparsecs, characteristic size being the cube root of the volume. But the largest dimension of this is about 1,240 megaparsecs, or about 4 billion light years, or about four times bigger than it should be. And it's pretty certain that these are the rough dimensions and that these quasars really are part of a single gravitationally bound group. What the news articles, of course, pick up on is that this challenges the idea of the cosmological principle of uniformity. And based on the journal article itself, there have been hints of other recent very large structures that have been discovered that also might break the cosmological principle. Without studying this field and being an expert in it, it's very hard for me to give a knowledgeable commentary, but in my opinion, I think that the assumptions that go into the model for this breakage need to be studied first before the cosmological principle is thrown out, which really is basically an assumption in its own. If you put in other values or assume other statistics, you do get different maximum sizes. But that doesn't mean that our basic understanding of the universe at large sizes is actually 100% correct. I mean, in fact, we're very likely very wrong on several assumptions. To use an analogy from my own research experience, we used to think that Saturn's rings were solid. Then we thought that they were made of lots of particles, but they were all uniform in size, uniform in distribution around the planet. Then we had the Voyager flyby, and we observed stars going behind the rings, and we measured the light patterns, and we came up with a granola bar model, where you have long strands of particles that are densely packed together, like granola bars, and then basically empty gaps between them. Now we have Cassini in orbit, and we have a lot more data, and those models no longer hold up, and we have to go into something more complicated, which also needs simulations of particles to understand. And that's what I did for two years, and we'll be picking up again in a week. From those simulations, we see webs and netting-like dense structures of particles, along with almost an atmosphere-like effect of smaller particles between them. The point is that we start with a very simple model, 
then we get more data, and we layer complexity on top of it until we get something that matches the data. Then we get more data, and those models break down, and we add more complexity onto those models. To me, that's what this seems to be, another layer of complexity onto a fairly simple model in what's still a pretty young field of investigation. That wraps up this Q&A segment, and if you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. I got a bit of feedback on the website from Phil from San Diego related to the last episode, the Nancy Leader Clip Show, who said, I can't help but feel it's a little unfair to criticize Nancy because it almost feels like you're taking advantage of someone who's just ill. I thought that this was worth a more public response and or discussion. I did give a disclaimer on the first Nancy Leader show, but I didn't repeat it for the second, and I'll repeat it now. This is not meant to make any conclusions nor statements about the mental health of Nancy Leader, nor whether she really believes what she says or not. I'm presenting what she stated compared with what the observable, independent facts show. I still hold to that, and this is something that Expat and I discussed towards the end of the interview in episode 68 with Richard Hoagland. In most cases, I really do try to be objective and not go into ad hominems except possibly to make a minor joke and to make the show a little bit more bearable. I honestly think that I do a better job of that than most skeptical podcasts out there, but if you think I'm mistaken, let me know. As with Hoagland, though, and really anyone else, the point is the claims, regardless of who makes them, and what I think can be learned from examining them. Perhaps I picked really low-hanging fruit with Nancy, but you could also say the same thing about others in the show, like Jose Escamilla's film Celestial, or Bergren's book, The Ringmakers of Saturn. But I still think that some interesting astronomy or physics or geology or whatever can be begotten from going through them, and as long as I think that, I think that they're fair game. Nancy said some pretty stupid stuff, but why exactly it was stupid, what's really going on, and what makes what she says wrong is what I hope that people would get out of that episode. For the second bit of feedback, a very, very special thanks to Wallace, or Wally L, from Hamburg, Germany. He realized that while I still had it on my to-do list to get the podcast listed in other places like the Windows Store, other things kept popping up, and I just kept putting it off. He took the initiative and got it listed, so thank you. And related to me being too busy for some stuff, there was no puzzler last episode, and there is no puzzler this episode. The next episode should be about historic and modern geocentrism, so if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send them in. For announcements, a reminder that TAM is just a bit under a month away now, and I'll be doing the very, very first workshop, 1A, Thursday morning at 8am. So if you're going and have an all-workshop pass, I do beg of you to at least come in for a moment so I can increase the numbers and maybe DJ will ask me back. If you're not going, but you know of someone who is and has an all-workshop pass, you should tell them to head on over to the camera one in the morning, not the blogging one. I mean, everyone knows how to blog. You don't need to learn how to blog. Learn about cameras. The camera one will be about ghosts and UFOs and crazy, crazy things. 
Also, if you're going to TAM, I am planning another little get-together, probably Saturday night during dinner time, in a suite in the hotel. I may even bring candied pecans. Assuming this happens, and it's more than just me and one or two other persons, I'm going to try to record it, with the hope being that it's sort of going to be like a little Q&A or a discussion about something, general topics of the show that you're interested in, etc, etc. You can tell that this is incredibly well planned out at the moment. If you're at all interested, please do send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net so I can update you with details. That wraps up this topic for the 77th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send me an email, podcast at sjrdesign.net. You could also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can also tweet me, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, then also tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life. 